The life of a sports reporter is not for the faint of heart. Many dedicate their entire careers, their entire lives, to the pursuit of a story worthy of being told. The stories themselves are appreciated by millions, but the storytellers, not so much. Who are they? What is their story? What have they learned from this crazy adventure? It's the storytellers that always have the neatest stories. Welcome back to another episode of the Storyteller Stories. I'm Haley Kate Webb, and I'm joined here today by Bob Holt. Bob has been covering the Arkansas Razorbacks since 1981. He's a member of the Football Writers Association of America. He's a voter for the Heisman Trophy and the AP Top 25 for basketball, and has been awarded the Arkansas Sports Writer of the Year three times. Bob, thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, glad to do it. Okay, I just kind of want to start off and talk about when and why you picked up sports writing and then touch on whether or not you always wanted to cover the Razorbacks or if that is just something that worked its way out. Well, uh, growing up, I, I liked writing and I really loved sports. And I went to a really small high school in southeast Missouri in a town called Cape Girardeau. That we had like 40 kids in our senior class. So even somebody like me could play basketball. And uh, probably can't tell by looking at me now, but I was a lot thinner back then. But and uh, but I obviously wasn't good enough to play beyond small high school sports. But so something I could do to stay involved was was to cover it. And then growing up in Missouri, just by happenstance, the uh, University of Missouri has a really good journalism school. And I always wanted to go there anyway. After I went to a football game there, uh, when I think I was a sophomore in high school, really exciting. Saw uh, Oklahoma come back and beat Missouri back in the 70s, the uh, dark ages, probably something like you, but uh, so the, uh, so it was a combination of, you know, really loving sports, like, you know, loving writing, and um, yeah, I never, I knew about Arkansas growing up, because, you know, we were just north of Arkansas, and I remember watching the Orange Bowl when Arkansas beat OU, Lou Holtz's first season in 77, and I knew about the triplets, you know, uh, when they went to the Final Four in 78, but Basically, uh, we had a, you have to remember the technology back in 1981 when I graduated, like it is now, people weren't emailing or, um, there, basically we, we had a job board at the J school where you walked by and there was a big bulletin board and people had jobs, you know, pinned on it. Like, you know, the, uh, Austin American Statesman is looking for a news writer or the Tulsa mm -hmm. world's looking for a copy editor or whatever the job might be. And, um, actually, I had a friend, Jeff Krupsaw, who um, was working the Democrat. It was the Arkansas Democrat at the time before it merged with the Gazette. And I think he called and put out the word that, hey, there's a sports riding job in Fayetteville. He actually turned it down because he really loved horse racing. He liked going to Hot Springs. He was working wow. in at the time. And so um, it was interesting because me, me and a couple other guys who were good friends, we all, we all went for the job. And I guess I was just a good fit. but. I felt very fortunate to, uh, I got a job covering the Razorbacks out of college. Of course, our paper was a lot smaller than, I think it was around 60,000 circulation. And um, it was, it had just switched from PM, which means afternoon edition to a morning edition to kind of go head to head with the Arkansas Gazette, which was much more established. So yeah, I, in June, I, I, um, I think it was late June. I felt really lucky to have a job because a lot of people didn't get jobs that quick. You know, it was very stressful. You know, you didn't really want to go 
back home and live with your parents after you got a college degree. Right. You didn't have a, you know, if you didn't have a job, you'd have a lot of choices. And so I felt really fortunate to get a job and, you know, a job that I thought covering the Razorbacks would be great. Didn't know I'd be doing it 40 years later, but the job kind of evolved into something. It was a good job at the time, but it really was kind of an entry level job. And it, you know, it evolved into a better job. The paper improved. Mm-hmm. And um, so, but I always tell people that I could cover the Yankees for the New York Times. I probably wouldn't, the audience I'm trying to reach here in Arkansas, they wouldn't care. Like the people in New York don't care anymore about the Yankees and the people in Arkansas do about the Razorbacks. So I always felt like, you know, it was a really good job covering a major college, but also, you know, you had an audience that really, really was interested in what you were doing. Mm-hmm. And so I thought that that was very appealing too. Do you think you've developed into a Razorback fan at all or just a writer for him? No, you really can't be a fan and cover the team. I mean, you can be, but it's not a good way to go. I'm definitely a fan of the people I cover and that I think they're really good people Mm -hmm. and they're good to deal with and I wish them well and all that. But you really can't root for the team. I I tell people this, you know, if if you're a fan and you cover a game, then if they win – you're all excited. You really can't do your job. You kind of got to analyze the stats and and what's going on in the game and be formulating in your head. What what am I going to write? Mm. Like for instance, last week I, I've not been traveling with the team because you know we have some media restrictions. Tom Murphy, our beat guy, goes, and also all the post game interviews just like this they're on Zoom. Mm-hmm. So I could be in Fayetteville. I could be at the game. I could be in. You know, Timbuktu, if I got internet access, I can get the post-game interviews. Right. And so um, watching the game last week, I had to file some notes by the end of the third quarter. So you kind of write about what's happened up to that point, And you hope nothing too crazy happens afterwards. <laughs> and then um, I was sitting there looking at the statue. And you have stat bro- that's something you have stat broadcast. You can keep up with the play-by-play. Literally, you know, they, they update the stats after each play. And I looked, and I knew Arkansas – wasn't doing very good on third down conversions offensively. I knew A&M was doing real well. And at this point in the third quarter, A&M was seven of eight on third downs. Arkansas had been the best in the SEC at stopping teams on third downs. They were only allowing about 30%. A&M was like at 88% or whatever seven of eight is. And so I sort of started forming my head. Okay, I'm going to write my sidebar on that. So as the fourth quarter was going on, I was watching the game, but I also was writing about that. So you know, if I'm sitting there going, oh, what's going to happen next? You know, I, I really, I got to analyze the game sort of uh, as an observer, not as a fan. And then if they win late and you're all excited and jumping around, you really can't do your job either. So you have to be very, I think you have to take a fan's perspective of being very interested in every aspect of the team, but you can't really get emotionally involved in the outcome. Otherwise you really can't do your job like you should. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that that does make sense. Oh, yeah, I kind of want to go back to early on in your career because you were talking about the triplets and everything that was going on. Was it ever intimidating as an early sports writer to walk into a room and have to talk to, I don't know, Nolan Richardson or guys of that uh, high caliber? Well, when I first started, Eddie Sutton was a basketball coach and, and Lou Holtz was a football coach. And I have to admit – I was, and I covered Norm Stewart at Missouri, and um, he was—he could be a pretty intimidating guy. He was a great coach, and I think Norm Stewart sort of wanted, especially with the young writers, and he dealt with a lot of those at Missouri because because of, of the J School. I think he sort of wanted to test you, and then, I mean, he wouldn't be like mean or anything, but I think he sort of wanted to test you to see, you know, kind of what kind of metal you had. I mean, M E T T L E, not M, you know. Yeah. And um, but I covered him and had a good time. I think that really actually prepared me pretty well for covering 
you know, Lou Holtz, Ray Sutton, or Nolan Richardson, or whoever I might run into here as far as uh, coaches I covered. And um, I do remember going in to see Lou Holtz one-on-one. I guess I was 21. And it was kind of intimidating because, you know, he the guy. He was the guy that had orchestrated the big upset over OU. He'd been on Johnny Carson, The Tonight Show. I don't know if you're old enough to remember Johnny Carson, but he, he used to host The Tonight Show for many, many years. And if you're on The Tonight Show back then, you had three channels. You know, you didn't have 300 channels. So um, that was a little intimidating. Not that he was, you know, mean or anything, but I remember being kind of nervous. But yeah, you know, Eddie Sutton, big time coach, and when Nolan Richardson replaced him, you know, big time coach, back to back Hall of Fame coaches, Naismith Hall of Fame coaches. They, those guys are probably in twenty five Hall of Fames between them. But the Naismith Hall of Fame is the biggest. You know, like Nolan Richardson called the Granddaddy of them all, mm-hmm. and uh, kind of like the Rose Bowl is for football games. And so, um, I think by the time Nolan Richardson came in, I'd covered Eddie Sutton, Lou Holtz, and Norm Stewart in Missouri, so I was a little better prepared, but. Yeah, that's something I think as a young writer, you kind of got to get over. You can't really be in all these people. Um, you can certainly respect them and admire them, but you can't really be in awe of them because you really can't cover somebody that, like if you want their autograph or something like that. I mean, that, that you, you got to see them as people and as coaches that you cover. Just like if you're covering politics, you're covering the governor or maybe the president or senator. You got to see them as people, you know? Yeah. Um, in a recent, or not recent, a couple years ago, an article written about you, they deemed you as, quote, fearless with a microphone and said you had uh, aggressive interview tactics. Can you elaborate on how you developed that reputation? Yeah, I don't know if it's deserved or not. I basically just try to have a natural curiosity about things, you know, like um, I always write down questions if I'm going into an interview or like that was from SEC Media Days. And we get coaches and then we get players. The coaches are up this big podium. You have to raise your hand and now you have to stand up because it's on ESPN, you or whatever, the SC Network, whatever that gets on. And they put everything on television now. Mm-hmm. And um, so I would write down things because, like I said, me and my coworker, Tom Murphy, we do something on every team that's there. You know, we make it like a two-week series. We even did that this year, even though there was no media days. You just had to kind of check with media friends and look and see what's out there on the internet because coaches were doing Zooms with their local media. But yeah, I just never looked at it as anything, I'm, you know, like out of the ordinary, just have, you know, do your research, you know, find out about the team, what's going on, you know, who they lose, who they have coming in, um, you know, and ask the coaches about it. Some of the coaches don't get a lot of questions. Obviously Nick Saban in Alabama and, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, Dan Mullen at Florida, Kirby Smart, Georgia, they get a lot of questions. Sometimes the coach of Vandy or Kentucky or, or even Arkansas, obviously we have a lot of questions for Arkansas. They don't get as many questions. So I think I've developed a bit of a reputation, but if I was doing a Vandy preview, I had to get some stuff. Other guys there, they're there to get this or that. They don't really care about Vanderbilt, you know, for example. So I guess I got a little bit of a reputation, but to me, it's just, you know, natural curiosity, kind of doing your homework you know, showing some interest. Uh, we were there to ask questions. So otherwise, what what's the point? If, you, if you're not there to ask questions, you can just stay home and watch on TV, you know? Yeah. Uh, there to ask questions. I love that. And I kind of want to touch on like the hard questions. They always talk about in sports, the hard stories to cover and the hard questions and how you have to ask them. You can't let them go by without asking about them. And so I just want to know what your perspective is and your mindset going into asking the hard questions and covering the hard stories? Well, I, th- I think you, you can ask hard questions in a respectful way. You know, it's, it's real easy to be on Twitter 
and make fun of somebody who maybe, you know, they might be a coach that's fighting for their job. You know, that that's a pretty serious, you know, thing. I mean, whether or not you're going to get fired or not. But sometimes that's a valid question to ask. It's kind of the elephant in the room, you know. I was watching um, Sports Center, I think, or some maybe it was the NFL Network the other night, and uh, the San Diego Chargers coach, whose name escapes me, <laughs> but uh, you know they had a tough loss. They've had a bunch of just close losses. <clears throat> I think they're one and whatever, one and five or something. And it, and somebody asked him, "Hey, are you worried about your job?" You know, I don't think they did that. I don't think they did that in a light way or like they relish doing it it was just probably something that's been talked about for a couple three weeks and it's out there and hey what does the coach think so I think you can ask those questions directly but respectfully the coach basically said something like well you know I'd be I'm paraphrasing here this is an exact quote he basically said well yeah I'd be a fool not to be thinking about my job because you know in the NFL you don't get a whole lot of you you don't go in with five-year rebuilding plans in the NFL if you lose for a couple years you're probably gonna get fired you know they Black Monday or whatever after the NFL season ends and usually four or five guys get fired mm-hmm. maybe more within a week but and so I thought I thought that was a good example of somebody asking a direct question and, and getting a direct answer you know the coach didn't get all defensive and say how can you ask me that or what do you think he said you know yeah you worry about it but I but I can't you know it I, I can't be focused on that I've got to focus on the team and winning but I remember um you know, Hugh Freeze was the old Miss coach, came to media days. He was under a lot of fire because uh, there'd been NCAA allegations about cheating. There'd been scandals about, you know, him misusing his cell phone for, let's just say, off the field things. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you know, that was a big question. Is this, is this guy getting, I mean, we thought he might get, we weren't sure he was going to make it to media days. And so I remember asking him, and I tried, I remember thinking, okay, there's a way to do this without, you know, being salacious or, you know, acting like you work for TMZ. And I, I, I'd have to go back and look it up how because they do transcripts of this. But I think I said something like, are you worried about your job or how concerned are you about the NC allegations? Because he had denied them, but he's also the head coach and usually it falls back on him. And he, you know, you could tell it was a little uncomfortable for him, but he answered it. And then honestly, within about two weeks later, he got fired. You know, or he resigned under pressure. That I always try to write that. So, because sometimes people resign, they don't because they're going to get fired. But they resign that the AD or the school gives them the option. So I always try to write like Lou Holtz. He essentially got fired here in 1983 after the 83 season, but he resigned. So I was right. He resigned under pressure. You know, it wasn't like it was his idea. Right. And uh, so yes, yeah, so I think there are a way to ask those questions. Respect. Sometimes you know, a team makes a really a question like a, a coach, you know, he's down the goal line and you think, well, he should give the ball to his running back. And, um, and they try, they try a pass and it backfires and doesn't work. Well, you don't need to say, coach, why did you make that dumb call? Or, you know, what were you, what were, what were you possibly thinking there? Why didn't you run the ball? You say, Hey, well, what, what was the strategy there at the goal line? Why didn't you give it to so-and-so? You know, you, you don't have to be accusatory. I mean, I think you say, uh, I'm asking you the question. I'm giving you a chance to explain yourself because the readers slash fans, you know, the people I'm serving, um, they want to know why. And the coach might have a really good explanation for you. Know, sometimes, you know, in, in, book, in baseball, it's a big thing. You want to get like a lefty-lefty matchup. You want a left-handed pitcher to pitch to a left-handed hitter. And so sometimes you might, um, you know, the coach might use a right-handed pitch hitter and you're thinking, why'd you do that? So you ask somebody like Dave Van Horn Arkansas, who's a great guy, great coach great quote as we say and Dave might say well you guys aren't privy to our 
scouting reports, but actually this pitcher um, or this, this hitter was batting, you know, 122 against lefties and he was batting 310 against righties. So that's why we brought on the left-hander to face him because, you know, goes against the book. He hits right-handers better than left-handers. That, that doesn't make sense statistically, but sometimes. Um, and so that, that's a really good explanation. You can use that for your readers and they can say, oh, well, that's why he did it, you know? So a lot of times and you just ask and let the coach or the player, whoever it might be, uh, just explain themselves. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned early on there about how they transcript every interview and, or the, at least the media days. And it reminded me when you were talking in Mr. Tim Hamilton's class about your notebook that you have and how you keep that notebook going and you refer back to it. Yeah, um, there, there it is right there. There it is. <laughs> well, I'm just curious how many of those that you have and how often you do go back and pull something from a previous interview. Oh, yeah. Nowadays, you never, I mean, when I first started doing this in the 80s, um, there'd be like maybe four people covering an Arkansas practice, football practice, basketball practice. They were wide open, you know. Mm-hmm. Nolan Richardson fans could go. It, when Arkansas was really good in the 90s, it was not unusual for 300 fans to be at Walton Arena watching a practice. It really wasn't. I'm not saying it was like that every day, but when they were winning, you know, the national championship and going to Final Fours, you know, there was obviously a lot of interest. And so, but back then, you could really talk to a coach every day. Like we used to talk to Lou Holtz, Kenny Hatfield, you know, Houston Nutt, um, Jack Crow, whoever the coaches were at the time. We we talked to them literally every day. We'd go out and watch practice. We'd see what was going on, who was hurt. And then the coach would come over and he'd talk to four or five of us, however many was there. And he, you know, we'd ask him about, Hey, why was so-and-so missing? He'd give a very detailed entry update, which I don't do now. And, uh, and you'd say, well, and I saw so-and-so move from tight end to a linebacker or whatever it might be. You got very detailed um, reports on post-practice. And we talked to the coach every day. So you, nowadays, like for instance, we get Sam Pittman on a zoom call on Monday for about 20 minutes and we have him on the SEC teleconference they on Wednesdays they each get 10 minutes sometimes they go 11 or 12 but it's generally 10 you know 10 minutes is what they're supposed to get and you, you'd be surprised how many questions you can get in 10 minutes um, if the coach doesn't you know just go crazy on his answers long as far as being long-winded and then we get them on Thursdays and that's I mean that's pretty good I mean some coaches talk Monday and on the teleconference and that's it I mean uh, Arkansas makes Sam available on Thursdays late, late in the late in the week, so that's good. I'm not complaining; it's just the way it is. What, what I guess what I'm getting at is, when I started doing this 40 years ago, you got you got the coach every day, so you could kind of say, okay, well, I'll have to ask him about that tomorrow. Now you get a coach three times, and you're not getting them. You know, it's not four or five of you on a Zoom; it might be a dozen of you, and everybody has their own questions, and they do a good job of kind of going. Okay, you know, Bob, what do you have? Tom, what do you have? You know, Haley, what do you have? Whatever the case might be. And so um, I guess the good thing is somebody else might have a good idea and a good line of questions you hadn't thought about. And you're like, wow, that's pretty good. Now we all have that. Um, and then sometimes you're trying to ask a line of questions and you're going to write a story later in the week and other people are going to take that and use it tomorrow. That's just the way it is. Mm-hmm. But, um, but yeah, so you, I definitely, you know, ask a coach something Monday that I might use for a story for Saturday, or I might even use it for next week. Uh, what I try to do is <clears throat> really use every opportunity and save it. And, um, you know, cause you, you know, you might use it, um, you know, if it, if it's 
if it's got some shelf life, you might use it a month from now. Mm-hmm. Or you might go back and say, you know, I use that, but it's it's uh, applies to this story. I mean, you don't really want to duplicate quotes a lot, but you might say, well, you know, I use this, but it, but it's germane to this topic now too, so I'm going to use it. But yeah, you have to be, I think you have to be very resourceful and don't waste any of this interview time because it's very limited now. Mm, especially now, yeah. Uh, I'm laughing because I listened to <laughs> Sam Pittman's press conference from yesterday, from Thursday. And you started asking him about his musical career, his background in playing guitar or whatever he, whatever he played. And it got me, yeah, it got me thinking, is that like those little random nuggets, is that ever something that you might come back to and use for like a feature story or something? Or is that just to get him talking? Well, no, I mean, um, I, I was not aware of Sam's musical talents. Ty Richardson, <clears throat> you know, who's on a radio show uh, here in the morning, I was just listening to it um, in Fort Smith, and Ty was smart enough, I'll give Ty credit, he asked Sam about, um, and maybe, you know, during their open date, Sam did a lot of TV and radio spots, and I, I heard some of them, didn't hear all of them, and so I don't know if Ty had heard this from somebody, or I don't know if Sam mentioned it in a previous interview or what, but Ty asked, you know, the, Sam made the famous jukebox comment after they beat Mississippi State, turn that jukebox on. Well, of course, they didn't have a jukebox in the Disney locker room in Mississippi right. State, but I guess they had some with music on it. When I was younger, they had what they called boom boxes. You know, they were these big, I don't know if you know what those are. They yes. people they walking down the street or they take them on buses or whatever. Now I've seen everybody's got stuff on their on their phone or this and that. And they got their their earplugs in, but back then it's like they called them boom boxes because guy'd be walking down the street and everybody within five blocks could hear him if they were really blasting it. I think that's kind of what Sam was referring to, because you know we're I'm a little older than Sam, but we're about the same age. You know he's 58, I'm 61. But anyway, Ty asked Sam about what he was listening to, and I was a little surprised Sam talked about Shaka Khan and. Rick James and probably a bunch of other people you haven't heard of and a band and this and that. And he mentioned that he played uh, piano and guitar. Well, I'd never heard that. And so mm-hmm. then my, um, uh, Kyle Parkinson from the UA, you know, he's a football SID, uh, that's sports information director. I think now they're media relations directors or, mm-hmm. um, but, but basically there's somebody that he basically handles publicity for the football program. He handles, you know, set up interviews for Sam and the players and running the zooms and all these things. And so it was my time to ask another question. And I had a question about the fact that so many guys on Sam's staff had coached in the SEC East. I mean, Sam had coached at Georgia, Barry Odom coached at Missouri, their line coach coached at Kentucky. And so these guys had played, ten, you know, in the East, you played Tennessee every year. Arkansas hadn't played them in five years. But these, so you think, wow, Tennessee hadn't played Arkansas in a while. Now these players have faced Tennessee, which is true. But these coaches are very familiar with them because they all played them last year and the year before that. So they're familiar with Jeremy Pruitt. So that was my question in my head. But this is where I think you have to have a little flexibility. I mean, like I say, I think I go into interviews or, you know, media days, or whatever, with, you know, four or five questions. But you have to be flexible. You know, if a coach says something interesting. You can't just say, well, my next question is on this and ignore it. So I said something like, well, I got to switch gears here. And so we got some more detail on how he'd taken music lessons growing up because their parents made everybody take piano lessons. I, I never took piano lessons. I'm very non-musical. As Sam pointed out when I asked him about it, did you play acoustic guitar or, or electric guitar? And he said, well, if you can play one, you can play the other. I think I said, oh, I'm not very musically inclined. He said, yeah, I could tell from that question. I, he was just having some fun. But he also, I think, was accurate. I don't know much about music and guitars and whatnot. 
And so, but I think that led to some interesting stuff that fans, you know, would find interesting. I mean, obviously X's and O's and football and recruiting, but also you like to know some personal stuff and you don't get as much of that now because as we talked about, the excess isn't quite what it was. And sometimes you think, well, I can't ask that question because that's kind of off the wall or that's kind of fluffy. I need to ask, you know, some hard hitting X and O question about why aren't you playing so-and-so more or why did you switch so-and-so to this position? But in this case, and Sam's a pretty engaging guy. So we just talked for a few minutes about, you know, him playing. He said the Welsh prom. He was talking about Welsh, Oklahoma, W-E-L-C. When he said in my ear, I heard Welsh, like I think England, like Welshman. And I, I couldn't quite tell prom. I just heard him say something like Welsh something. I thought, well, is he talking about like a music festival where they play well? It was very odd, I thought. And that's why, since, you know, we're not talking like me and you were talking, and you can say, well, what do you mean by that? Or I can say, well, what do you mean by that? You know, you're on the Zoom call, and so before the next question goes, I want to sort of clarify what he was talking about. Well, it was good, the Welsh Oklahoma prom. You know, you can mm-hmm. picture a young guy and his buddies playing at a prom in Oklahoma when, when they were in high school or, or college or whatever. And so, yeah, I think that was interesting. I think uh, Tom used that in his notes today. I think they... They were talking about it on the radio just now. And I think that's, um, I think sort of, it's, it's obviously lighter. It's kind of funny. I think people like that. I mean, whether it's showing it on TV or radio or newspapers or websites, whatever, um, you know, it gives you a little insight into somebody beyond football. Hey, Sam's, you know, plays the piano and, and uh, plays guitar. So I think that stuff's interesting. Yeah. Uh, and this is just a question that just came to me while, you were talking about that and you're talking about fans being interested and stuff like that. And I feel like when it comes to sports, you have a very wide variety of fans. You've got fans that are just interested in stuff like that off the field, the personal stuff that's complete enjoyment. And then you have people who are really into it and really educated on it and want the X's and O's and the numbers and the details. As a writer, how do you manage that going into an article and what audience are you trying to write to? Well, I, I got to admit most, so I'm going to take a little swig of water here. Oh, you're <laughs> good. Um, you know, it just kind of depends. I think you need to, <clears throat> you need to go into an interview or a story with an idea and maybe you stick to that or maybe you deviate from it a little bit. Um, I mean, you kind of have to know, you know, we, we try to plan things at the beginning of the week. We have a budget and it can be flexible because there can be news that breaks. Somebody can get hurt. Somebody can leave the team. Um, a coach can say something unexpected in an interview that leads you. Wow, I need to do a story on this now. You know, like I said, somebody else, like somebody, you know, like, like you're on the Zoom call and you're asking all these great questions that I hadn't thought about. And I was like, well, I mean, I don't know if you want to call it stealing an idea, <laughs> but, but if it's on a Zoom call, it's all out there f- for free. Mm-hmm. I mean, in terms of anybody can use it. And so um, you have to be flexible, but, you know, like I may have a plan, I'm doing a, you know, like a feature story on this player or this aspect of the team, maybe they're doing well at this position or, you know, something on the run game or something on the pass defense, whatever. And so I'm going to do that for Friday. And I kind of know in my head, well, that's, we, we can't talk about inches, like that's 25 inch story. You know, other people talk about words, that's an 800 word story. That's, a, you know, whatever. We, we kind of deal in inches where literally like you have the newspaper page, you can take a ruler and you say, okay, well, this is 12 inches, 12 inches, that's 24 inch story, you know, and you kind of get an idea of what that would look like on a newspaper page. We have the replica on the iPad or the phone now. We still print a few papers every day. Um, and then we print, 
uh, a big section on Sundays because we still get a lot of ads, but obviously print is, is um, you know, decreasing dramatically around the country just because, you know, the, just the way it's presented. But um, in another story, you say, okay, I'm going to do what we call takeout, or that's a major feature, you know, like maybe it's going to be 70 inches, which mm-hmm. is about three times what a normal story would be. Obviously, you can get a lot more stuff in a 70-inch story than you can in a 25-inch story, so you kind of have to decide you know, what I do is I get all my quotes, like I'm doing a story. Last time I'm doing a story for, for Saturday, you know, tomorrow's paper, Tom writes the advance. And then I write what we call kind of a secondary story sidebar. I'm writing about Hudson Henry and um, Blake Kern doing pretty well tied in because that was kind of a question mark coming in. And so we had asked Sam about that on, on Monday. I asked him a little bit more, another question on Wednesday. We talked to Hudson on Wednesday night. I asked, uh, you know, Hudson had a good game against uh, A&M, so I asked Jimbo Fisher about Hudson on Wednesday. And that's where you're kind of careful, because sometimes a coach, you know, he's ready to move on, or, you know, he might not remember certain play. I think I, like Jimbo was on there. He talks very, very fast, by the way. So you can get a lot of questions on Jimbo in 10 minutes. He talks extremely fast. And so I think I just said something like, hey, Hudson Henry, number 82. A lot of times coaches and players, they know more guys more by number than name. And so I said, hey, Hudson Henry, number 82 from Arkansas, had a you know kind of a career game against you. Just wondered, you know, what you remember about that. And he might say, you know, uh, I'm focused. We're playing Georgia. I'm focused on Georgia. They're not playing Georgia, by the way. I can't remember who him is playing. <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, or they, you know, they, they did. Okay. You know, that that's fair. Um, but a lot of times those coaches want to be accommodating if they can be, I think. And so he said, oh, yeah, he kind of laughs at, oh, thanks for reminding me. And I'm thinking, well, you won the game, you know, so I think it's okay. I, I didn't say that. But then he said a couple things like, hey, very physical, very good player, this and that. That's kind of what I mean about trying to mine every little possible nugget you might be able to get. And, you know, if he doesn't say something, hey, okay, you know, um, at least you asked. And maybe you would. And he said something very good about Traylon Burks, you know. Mm-hmm. So different, uh, you never know what you're going to get from a coach. But so anyway, so last night I was organizing all my quotes files so that um, I'll probably start writing when we get done with this and that way I've got everything lined up. And I think I have a good angle idea from some of the quotes. Hudson, Hudson's a good quote, you know, Hunter Henry's brothers with the Chargers. Mm-hmm. And uh, he talked about the pressure coming here and playing the same position as his brother was an All-American. He's very open about that. So I'll probably write some about that. But if he had said something like he played music, like which I didn't know, I might have gone in that in that direction. So I think you kind of have to be ready, and then you have to see where the interview takes you. But depending on the space and the day, you sort of have to know. Well, I can't, you know, use everything I got here. I gotta sort of pick and choose what I think is good because I'm writing, you know, about a 25 inch story here as opposed to man, I'm writing a 70 inch story. I can get all this stuff, and that's another thing. I think people tend to think they got to use everything they get. Mm-hmm. And that'd be nice um, if it was like a Q&A, but, but really you have to figure out what, I mean, my job or, you know, the job, the job that people do like I do is to sort of pick what you think is the most interesting stuff so the reader doesn't have to watch, you know, all these Zoom <laughs> interviews and say, well, what's going on here? They get that unfiltered that way, whether it's news or sports or whatever it might be, but um you know, th- th- this way you sort of have to know, well, what what's my um, angle for that day? What's my space? And then you can do that accordingly. If you're going to do a big 70-inch story, you probably have to do some extra interviews and just get more stuff. But I remember in school, they used to tell us, 
you know, if you use 20% of the stuff you get, you might use 20% of it. You may think, wow, I got 80% of the stuff I'm not using. Well, one, you might use that for another story. And two, that's just the cost of, you know, gathering information. And that 80% might be okay. The 20% you're using is really good. It's gold, you know? Right. It's really great. And so you can't just um, overload people with information. You know, sometimes I think people tend to think, well, I've got to get that in there because I have it. Well, you know, you don't have to just use your best stuff, you know. That's where your notebook comes in handy. You save it for later. Yeah, well, basically, it's all in my Gmail account. <laughs> you know, we, <laughs> we do the writers, since we're all getting the same thing, we transcribe stuff and share it because, you know, it just saves you time because transcribing 20 minute interview, you can take an hour. At least it can for me. So mm-hmm. we divide it up and do three or four minutes. And that way, you know, everybody's got to be. Yeah, there's definitely stuff that I... Sometimes I look up, um, it was funny, we did a story on Traylon Smith, who's a running back. He transferred from Arizona State, redshirted last year, and he's had, you know, and, and he's had a really good year. He played quite a bit, you know, uh, uh, Rakeem Boyd, their star, was hurt, um, and Tra- Traylon's played quite a bit. And we interviewed him in the fall, in the pre- preseason camp, we call it fall camp, but it's in September <laughs> or in August. So, you know, I mean, at least preseason practice, whatever. And he was a really good interview talking about, you know, redshirt and what it meant to him. And last year they had raved about him early. And this was, you know, the previous staff. Some of these guys weren't even here anymore. Matter of fact, the running back coach, Jeff Trailers, the head coach at Texas San Antonio now. But I went back. I found my files about what people said about him. And so I used some of that and said, hey, a year ago, you know, he was red shirt, but he was doing real well in practice, which is closed. So we could just, but everybody was talking about how good he was. And so I, I used some of that stuff from a year ago. And normally you say, well, that's kind of stale. I don't need to use that. But I thought it was topical um, that, you know, teammates and coaches from last year were, were talking about how good he was. And now it was going to come to fruition. You're going to see how good this guy was because he was finally going to get to play. So you know, sometimes I, I do go pretty far back and sometimes I'm going on the archives, you know, from 20 years ago and looking up stuff I wrote because I don't remember what I wrote 20 years ago. I just sort of said, man, I remember writing a story. I don't really remember the details. I'm going to read that and because you might be doing a look back story, you know. Mm-hmm. I've always been curious because you talk about how there's all these different writers that are on the Zoom calls and I've always been curious how you guys, or how as a writer, you set yourself apart because each of you is getting the same interview. You're getting the same sound bites from the coaches, the same information, and then you all have to go write a story. So how do you find those pieces that set your piece apart from the 20 other writers that are getting the same stuff? Well, I don't know if it does or not. And in my case, you know, the game's over. Um, like from AM, and you try to look and analyze. Obviously, there's stuff you wrote Sunday. There's stuff you wrote Monday for follow-ups. And we do a rewind, a big rewind mm-hmm. notes. And that's sort of – I just remember thinking, wow, Hudson Henry had a, had a career game. And, <clears throat> you know, you, you on a road game, especially with time constraints, like it, if it wasn't for the coronavirus, um, we, we'd be there. Tom was there, but he's up in the press box on the Zoom, just like I'm sitting here, right right here. I'm in this exact same place where I'm talking to you doing the Zoom. But if it wasn't, if, if we were, if it was normal, we'd travel, we'd go down to the interview room. Sam Pittman would come in, talk for, you know, 12, 15 minutes, whatever it might be. Uh, usually they talk a little bit longer uh, during the day at a home game, but at night, you know, they got to fly home. You know, they got, so Sam's got to go out and tape his TV show and stuff. I think they do that. 
And so, um, and they might bring like three or four players in the year room, then you'd spread out and kind of get them. Well, now because of the Zoom, you, you know, like we got Felipe Franks for about 10 minutes the other night, and we got Bumper Pool for about 10 minutes. And those were the two natural guys to interview. But instead, it was, but okay, so you're getting Sam for like 12, 15. Then you know, so that, that's a long time. You know, that's about an hour, between, you know, when by the time you get them in an interview, them. So, you know, they, they got to fly home to Fayetteville. And so, um, you know, like we couldn't get Hudson Henry, which I totally understand, you know, because you're, you're not interviewing five or six guys, you're getting two guys because of the time constraints and because of everything's got to be done by Zoom. And so I remember thinking, well, Hudson would be a good story. So I sort of thought about doing that this week. And then, you know, other people, if they want to do that, they can put their own spin on it. But, um, and some people, you know, wrote about the tight ends for Tuesday after what Sam talked about. That's perfectly fine. Yeah, I, you know, because I somebody else might ask about the linebacker. And I might say, well, hey, that's a good story. I'm writing about that for tomorrow. But by sort of waiting, I got, you know, a little more stuff from Sam. We got stuff from Hudson. I asked Jimbo about him. So hopefully by the end of the week, my story will be a little, uh, have a little more layers to it, so to speak. But yeah, you're right. We're all getting the same stuff. And sometimes you might call a player's, you know, high school coach. Maybe mm -hmm. you call, talk to their parents. Uh, maybe you talk to somebody they played with who's no longer on the team. Or, you know, another thing you can do is, um, like we had uh, Rakeem Boyd on along with Hudson the other night. And you can ask Rakeem about uh you know, the tight end, you can ask defensive guys, they go against these guys in practice. Hey, you know, you might ask a linebacker, what do you think about Hudson? So, um, you know, we talked to Blake Kern back in September before the season started, you know, he was a former walk-on who got a scholarship last year. And I, I went back and looked at that. We wrote some stuff at the time, but I went back and looked at that interview, even though it was pushing two months just to kind of get some background. So you just, I think you just try to fill in some spaces here and there and just kind of put your own take on it. One thing I'd really try not to do, I, I like to read other people's stuff, information, but if I'm going to write on that topic, I try not to read it to later because I don't want to read something and then it gets in my head and then I start thinking, well, I thought of that and I write it and it's really like, well, no, actually that was somebody else's lead. It's almost like plagiarism or right. something, not, not intentionally, <clears throat> but so I, I want to get information, but I also kind of try to keep my head clear because if you read too much stuff, then it's tough to, to write your own angle too, you know, so sometimes. Mm -hmm. uh, in Mr. Tim's class, we always talk about, uh, and in any sort of sports reporting, we always talk about how sports is the story of the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. I forgot who said it, but it's a famous quote from somebody. And so as a writer, I'm just curious, do you have a preference or is one of those easier to cover, the victory or the defeat? Yeah, I was on Wide World of Sports, ABC's Wide World of Sports back in the 60s. I don't know who said it either, but you could probably Google it. They always show they always show this poor skier going down the slope and then crashing and, you know, probably breaking his leg or something. But um, yeah. I don't know who said it. It might have been Jim McKay was the guy who said it on TV. I don't know if he was, if that was his line or some guy wrote it for him. That was from somebody else. But anyway, um, well, I think it's always more fun to cover victories, you know. There definitely can be really good storylines and, you know, sort of tragedy, you know. I mean, there, there's different degrees of tragedy. I mean, losing a football game, you know, that's not like real life where people get injured or killed or so. I think you have to keep that in perspective. I know some people treat football games like life and death, but, it, you know, and I know it's big business. There's a lot of money at stake. 
you know, people's careers can be at stake, but you also have to realize, Hey, yeah, that was a tough loss. Nobody died. You know, let, let's try to keep, you know, football tragedy or sports tragedy and, and real life tragedy. You know, those are two different things. I always kind of try to stay away from war analogies and sports because, you know, we have, you know, young people fighting, you know, defending our country around the world. And I'm not saying I never use like a war analogy, but I really try to stay away from those because to me, war and battles and all that's, that's, you can talk about a position battle, but I really don't like to invoke war images for sports because, you know, I almost think that's disrespectful to, to, you know, people serving our country. That's just sort of a personal thing. Not saying I would never do it, but um, I, I don't like to make a habit of it because I think it's sort of is a little disrespectful personally, you know, honestly. But um, yeah, I think it's always, I mean, I covered 20 straight SEC losses. It was a lot more fun to write about them mm-hmm. beating Mississippi State and ending that streak. And before that, I covered 17 straight SEC losses. I never thought I'd have, and I remember when they beat LSU, that was a lot of fun to write about them winning. And we talked earlier about you can't be a fan. I, um, I'll tell you, coming back to that, what, what I get to be, I, I get to be a fan of angles, story angles. Mm-hmm. And like you talk about, yeah, I don't root for this team or that team to win, but let's say a, um, a guy gets hurt and a little known reserve goes in and starts playing well. Well, I want that guy to keep playing well because that could be a great storyline. That could, that could be a really, that could make my job a lot easier after the game, writing about, you know, so-and-so going in there and really saving the day and stepping up and all that. So I sort of write for story angles to keep developing if, if I think that would be a good story. Now, this guy goes in and has three good runs. You think, well, wow, that could be a good story. And then he doesn't do anything the rest of the game. Well, gee, you know, so much for that. And, you know, anybody that's been doing this for any amount of time, writing on deadline, can tell you about um, having a whole story written, you know, because the team's up by two touchdowns because this guy's playing great. You know, like the quarterback's playing great. You're writing a story about how great the quarterback's playing. You got – you got it written, basically. All I got to do is fill in the quotes, you know, get a few post-game quotes filled. Well, all of a sudden, that guy throws a pick six and throws another interception, they lose the game, and all of a sudden, your story that you wrote is is meaningless. You know, it's just, mm-hmm. you know, you basically got it. It'd be like if you were writing on a paper, you just take it out of your typewriter and wad it up and throw it away. Now, now we just hit the delete button on our laptops. And... Um, so, yeah, definitely, especially if you're on a night deadline, you're rooting for that storyline to keep going your way. And a lot of times it doesn't happen. You've got to just be professional and deal with it. I mean, you know, your, your initial thought is to just be upset and mad. Maybe even be mad at the player, which is totally unfair. But you can say, man, why is this guy doing this? Like, he's, why is he doing it to me? And it's like, well, he's not trying to do it. And by the way, he's trying to win the game for him and his teammates and his coaches and his fans. But you sort of have a, a habit. You sort of have a, you know, everybody looks at how does this affect me, right? And mm-hmm. so, so as a writer, sometimes, you know, it's not it's not right, it's not fair, but you, you you might even, you know, get frustrated with a player because, oh, man, he's messing up my story angle, you know, which I'm sure the player could care less about your story. Right. At least try to win the game, but we, we all tend to internalize everything that happens. And um, so, yeah, I don't root for a team, but I, I'll root for a storyline. Do you ever save your what-if stories that you have to throw out? Yeah, because usually I save everything. You know, I, I start typing in my file and then I, I, I call it, you know, like, you know, UA site or, or you know, whatever <clears throat> whatever topic it might be. And so it's in my files. Um, every once in a while you can use, a, you might be able to save a lead or something or a story angle. 
and it might apply. That's probably pretty rare, but yeah, I've got a zillion files on my computer that I've probably, a lot of them I probably haven't looked at in years. Um, a lot of times when the IT guys are doing work out there, they're amazed at all the stuff I have in here. And I'm like, well, you know, it's just sort of like, you never know when you might need it, you know? So don't, 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 don't kill it out if you have the space to save it. Mm-hmm. Is there one sporting event or one story from your whole career that stands out as one of your favorites that you got to do or write? Um, I can't remember if I talked about this in your class or not. Back, Danny Ford was the football coach. Um, you know, he fired Jack Crow when he lost the Citadel to open the season in 1992. And Joe Kynes became the interim coach. And because there was an opening on the staff, because Jack got fired, he brought in Danny Ford, um, who'd worked with the Clemson. Danny was pretty famous. Danny'd won a national championship as Clemson's coach, and they kind of got crossways with the chancellor president there at Clemson, and he basically took a big buyout. And one thing, he could come to Arkansas and be an assistant coach, and he didn't lose any of his buyout. He only lost the buyout if he became a head coach. Mm-hmm. And he still had, I don't know, six months to go on his buyout, and they were paying him a lot of money not, not to coach the team. That happens a lot these days with these contracts, you know. And um, so Danny Ford came in, <coughs> excuse me, and um, Danny ended up getting, the, getting hired at Arkansas, and it was after that buy. I remember looking up his contract and talking to guys at Clemson. I knew exactly when that contract expired. So I knew exactly when he could get hired and not lose the buyout money. It was after the season. And so Danny got hired and took the job. And um, you know, Danny's a really good guy. He, he's a, um, I don't know if you call him a gentleman farmer, but he has a farm in Pendleton, South Carolina. And um, he was always really smart with the stock market and everything. He kind of acted like he was just some... You know, he was all academic. I think it was an academic All-American when he played Alabama for Bear Bryant. So Danny was a very sharp guy, but he kind of acted the country. That was sort of his persona. And he obviously had a Southern accent. He was from Gaston, Alabama, I believe. But anyway, you know, Danny, Arkansas's program was down then, kind of like what they were when Sam came in. They hadn't been quite that bad, but they'd been bad. They'd come into the SEC. They really weren't ready for it. And um, they'd struggled, you know, they were coming off that, uh, I think it was a three, seven and one season. That's before they played 12 games. And so Danny was trying to build up fan interest. He, that's something he'd done at Clemson. They had this thing called IPTE, which was sort of their Razorback foundation it was called, I pay 10 a year. And it was kind of dated because it started maybe in the fifties and people, the idea was you had grassroots support. Yeah. You had your big boosters, big businesses that gave, you know, thousands of dollars maybe millions, but you also had to have your, your, you know, your grassroots support where, you know, a Clemson fan who maybe just had a regular job, he'd pay $10 a year to be an IPTE, which was their, their, their booster organization. And it was sort of like, yeah, I'm not giving, you know, $5,000, but I can pay $10 and I can be part of the program. And then as time went on, people gave a lot more than $10, but that IPTE was, and they may still have IPTE, I'm really not sure, but that was something Danny, uh, decided to he decided to do a tour around the state because he was new to the state. He was from South Carolina, and he, I don't really think he came to Arkansas to get the Arkansas job. I think maybe he wanted the South Carolina job. But bottom line is, the Arkansas job got offered to him. He wanted to get back into coaching, and so he was the Arkansas coach kind of unexpectedly. And so they had this thing where um, RVs—I didn't know what those were at the time. They're recreational vehicles, and they're—I'm not talking about an SUV. I'm talking about these things are like big. They're like 
big mobile homes, you know, I mean, they're big. I, I could not, never imagine driving one. And there was about, I don't know, seven or eight fans that had these big RVs. They'd go around to the games. Instead of having to get a hotel, they just go to an RV park. I mean, these things are like big trucks and they got everything in them, you know, bathrooms, kitchens, you know, they're just basically like little houses on wheels. And um, so Danny, they worked out this thing with the Razorback Foundation and he um, made like, I don't know, about 25 stops in about a week. They'd, they'd go all around the state to these small towns for the most part. And because, um, you know, he spoke in Little Rock all the time or this. So um, he would go speak somewhere at a breakfast deal, like at the Rotary Club or something. They'd speak somewhere at lunch. Sometimes he just went to a bank or something. It was almost like a politician in the 50s getting up on a soapbox and talking to people. He was, he was basically campaigning for Arkansas. And he was trying to get people to join the Razorback Foundation. And I think, I think it cost $25 at the time to join the foundation. And, you know, you got press guides and different things. Mm -hmm. And, and, um, and I think at the time they were like running a sale, so to speak, you could get it for $10. That was his big pitch. You know, and he had this big saying, you know, he's a farmer, which came first, the chicken or the egg, mm. you know, meaning what comes first? Do you support our program and your support helps us win? Or do you have to wait for us to win to support us? His whole thing was, hey, get on board with us now, you know, you know, basically be yeah. the chicken so we can lay the egg that helps, you know, um, the program. I thought that was pretty interesting, you know, because that, I guess that's an age-old question, which which did come first, you know. Right. Somebody had to lay the egg, but, you know, how did that happen? I don't know. That's smart enough. But it was really interesting. So the paper, um, I can't remember if I pitched it or somebody else pitched it to me, but they said, hey, why don't you go along on this tour and just kind of write about Danny? Because Danny was still very new to the fans, and it was kind of a way to get behind the scenes. And like I said, the access was better. And so... Mm -hmm. I talked to some folks and I was able to ride in, in, in one of the RVs. I drove to Fort Smith and met him. And then we all drove down to Lake Village, Arkansas, which if you look on a map is way down on the Louisiana border. And I don't, you know, that, that was a place normally an Arkansas coach. You also got to remember it was a big deal because the Arkansas coach did not go to places like Lake mm -hmm. Village very often. And so, uh, Danny had just been at the, like the SEC coaches meetings. He flew a school plane to Lake Village. They picked him up at Lake Village Airport, and, man, away we went. And uh, Frank Burroughs, the AD at the time, who, you know, hired Danny, obviously, was a, you know, legendary coach. He was on part of the trip. There was four or five people. And Danny just kind of would be in different – he'd switch different RVs, so he kind of got to know the people. But um, – and then at night, we'd drive into someplace um, – I don't know, like Forest City or something. I can't even remember where all we went. And that's you'd stay at the, you know, the Days Inn in, in Fort Smith, or not Fort Smith, Forest City. And so, like I said, he was doing three of these a day, and it was really interesting. And so I just tagged along with them, and then I took notes everywhere he went, and I sort of made it a diary. And we did a big. This is kind of like I'm talking about the takeout. We, mm -hmm. we we had a big map of Arkansas, and we had all the places he went with like a little RV. And um, it was pretty cool. And I almost wrote like a, like a travel diary, like here's what he did. And there was all these funny things that happened. Like this is before the days of cell phones. It's hard to impress, hard for somebody your age to imagine. But, you know, you had to, you know, use a pay phone or an office phone. I remember we went to a bank somewhere. And um, Danny went into like the loan officer's office 
to make some calls, you know, call recruits. I don't know what he was doing. Maybe he was calling coaches, but he was, you know, he has stuff to do. And um, so he goes in there. And also this is before people's pictures were plastered all over the place all the time. Mm-hmm. So I'm just kind of hanging around. I, I might've been, in, I don't think I was in the office with him because he's probably making some private calls, but I was just hanging around the lobby of the bank. It was a, it was a small bank. It, and so somebody knocks on the door, they go in the office. They think Danny's the loan officer. Oh. <laughs> and so they start asking all this stuff. And Danny has to say, hey, I'm Danny Ford. I'm the coach. He's introducing himself. He's trying to convince them to, to join the Razorback Foundation. It was pretty funny. And there was another time we were checking into one of the small motels. And it was raining. And some ladies came in. And they were talking about they had a flat tire. And so they were just asking if they could hang out in the lobby. They were waiting for somebody to come change a tire for them. And Danny, you know, who's a, you know he's an old school guy. You know, he basically offered to change the tire for him. They didn't know who he was. It was clear they had no idea he was Danny Ford, University of Arkansas coach. It was a pretty big deal in Arkansas. And he said, hey, ladies, well, where's your car? I'll, I'll go down and change a tire for you. They said, oh, no, we've got AAA coming out or something like that. But that was an interesting little slice of life moment. These ladies, you know, Danny and Danny didn't say, I'm Danny Ford from Arkansas. I'll change your tire. He just said, hey, you know, it's, so there was just a whole lot of things like that. And it made a really good story. I remember feeling some pressure because I normally write you know, seven, eight stories a week. Mm-hmm. In this case, I went on the road and I didn't write anything for a week. And then I had, um, so I basically taken up, you know, a week of, you know, the paper's time. And, you know, there, in our business, there's a lot of pressure, you know, to produce, you know, on a daily basis. And so this was sort of that oddity. So I felt a lot of pressure, but I thought it was a really good story. I won an award for it. it like I say, the layout was really good. We started out front, and then it took up, I think, the whole back page of, uh, or whole page inside somewhere, and it got a lot of good comments. That was probably the funnest story I did, most fun, whatever I should say, grammatically there, because it was it was just so different than than what I would usually do. Sorry, that was such a long story. Oh no, you're good. I love it. I love it. Uh, just real quick before I let you go, what's one little piece of advice that you would have for someone that wanted to get into the sports industry as a writer? Well, one thing I did when I was in college, um, I would say I was from Cape Girardeau, but I was in Columbia, Missouri, which is in the middle part of the state. But there would be kids from, um, you know, that would come to college in Missouri that would play sports for, you know, whether it was baseball, basketball, whatever football case might be. And the Southeast Missourian, which is still a paper down there in Cape, um, I would call them and I'd offer to write stories for them for free which I know nobody really likes to do stuff for free. I don't either. I get that. But to me, that was a way to break in mm-hmm. and get clips as we call them then. And I'd write a story about some, you know, Sykeston, that's a town about 30 miles south of Cape. And maybe the short, the starting shortstop in Missouri was from Sykeston or something. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, um, I'd call up and say, Hey, would you guys like a story on so-and-so from Sykeston? And they'd say, yeah, sure. We can't, we can't pay you. I was like, yeah, that's okay. I mean, to me, the payment was to get the clip in the paper. One thing my parents got to see, so that was kind of cool. Uh-huh. And my friends could see it. And two, um, it was something I could take to hopefully get jobs, you know, because what you want to do back then, now you'd have emails or whatever mm-hmm. and, you know, online stuff. Back then, you, you literally would cut it out of the paper and then you put it in a book. That was your clips book. Say, hey, here's a story I did. So I would encourage people um, to just, uh, you know, reach out to um, local media and um, offer up your services. And if they say, hey, we'll pay you a little bit for that, that's awesome. 
if they say, well, we can't pay you for that because obviously money's tight with everybody. You say, hey, I'm just looking for experience. So, you know, sometimes experience and can be more important than money. You know, that can help you get a job that'll, you know, pay you some money. So I think, you know, just get out there and try to, you know, get experience, uh, whether you're in, you know, radio or you know, podcast, whatever you might be like, what you're doing now is you know, to try to get some experience, um, you know, try to think outside the box a little bit, um, and th- th- you know, but just the, the more experience you can get doing this, the better, because when I was starting off, I wasn't particularly good at it. And there are probably some people that say, well, you're not very good at it now either, but <laughs> I'm a whole lot better than I was, you know, when I was in college. Mm-hmm. And so, and a lot of that is just get, getting used to doing things. So I, th- I think the, the best thing I could give advice um, would, would be just, just try to get out there and get some experience and don't worry so much about the money, mm-hmm. um, but just, just try to get some experience of what you're doing. Because obviously the more experience you're going to get, hopefully the better you'll get at it. Yeah. Okay. Well, I could sit here and talk Razorback sports all day long, but I'll let you go. Thank you so much for joining me. It has been a pleasure. Okay, well, I enjoyed it too.